Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so happy to have you join us again. Today's guest is Tia Jensen. Tia and I dish about self-awareness and what Tia calls the great unlearning, being able to regulate our attention and loving ourselves unconditionally. Tia is an ADHD entrepreneur, meaning that she specializes with people who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. She's also a certified life coach, mother, artist, and nature lover. And she says that her own ADHD brain has her following many interests, including helping others live, love, and thrive with their ADHD brains too. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Tia Jensen, to the Dish with Dino podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. You are currently on the West Coast. Is that correct? I'm the on the West Coast. Coast. I'm Washington State. Yes, I'm on currently Central Washington, some weeks on Western Washington. <laughs> How is your day going there? Tell me a little bit about the temperature and the vibe. Oh, my goodness. It's like, yeah, you know, when we had summer solstice, I'm like, can we have some summer with our solstice? Because we've had some really weird weather. Today, I've got sunshine, just partially cloudy, light clouds, beautiful weather, already been out for my walk. I'm loving it. Oh, that's bring good. It, bring on more. Of bring course, I more. think later this week, it's going to be in the 90s and they'll be like, what was I asking for? Yes. <laughs> we always have complaints, whether it's too much of one thing or too much of the other. We've had okay. some bouts of clammy, cool weather in the last couple of days. Today's kind of overcast. Meh. And so I see in the forecast, it says rain almost every single day. So we'll Aww, see what happens. We'll come see out and visit. I will. I was going to say, we'll, have, we'll, we'll maybe speak with Mother Nature and just be like, could you get yes. your ass together? <laughs> Please. <laughs> so Tia, you and I were just kind of going down memory lane of how we came to meet each other. What brought us together? How did we get introduced? I love that we met in a, a group with, it was uh, for Amy Porterfield's program. And, you know, it was... You go into something like that, just going to for some education. And when you come out and you've been able to connect with people with similar ideas, um, it, it's just so empowering. So I love that we met there in a group that we were both there for an education and we can walk out with new friends. <laughs> yes. And I shared with you before too, prior to us hitting record on this, that I felt so grateful to be in a group yeah. like that because at the time I was there, but I wasn't really, I was taking in the information, but I couldn't really execute stuff because I was dealing with managing some other priorities in my life. And yeah. yet I got about a handful of people when the podcast request came out, you know, to share with people, if you're on a podcast or have a podcast or want to be on a podcast. And I was just so grateful. And so I often think too, and I think you and I will talk about this as our conversation progresses when there's like-mindedness. There's no such thing as coincidence. People find each other. Cause there were like 9,000 people yes. in that group, if I remember correctly. And during her live sessions too, there were thousands of people there as well. So for us to be able to find each other and whoever else I have been able to cross paths with in a much more specific connected way, I'm so grateful for that. I also believe there's no such thing as coincidences. And this mm -hmm. is also something that I like to point out in these discussions that take a chance, right? If you are one of those passive members in groups, just take a chance, reach out. You never know who you might cross paths with, how that connection might end up 
creating a collaboration, a partnership, or just an opening of a discussion where you're able to vent and share information with each other. So I really am so grateful for things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And you know, the worst that's going to happen is you'll learn something yeah. either about yourself or, you know, about the situation. So why not take the risk? Absolutely. 100% agree. So Tia, let's go back a little bit down for your memories, the ones that I'm not included in just yet here and share with us a little bit about some of the things that you first remember when it comes revolving around food family dynamics, recipes and holidays, cultural traditions, share with us where you grew up, what kind of environment that was, and what some of your earliest food memories were. So for me, like I was born in the South. Um, My mom married a Northerner and we came back and forth between Texas and Washington a couple of times. But what I remember the most is as far as community, my mom's family, you know, she had brothers and sisters and I had lots of cousins. So like holidays, we all came together. It was a little chaotic. I don't, and I was pretty young at that time. We moved up here permanently when I just finished second grade, but I remember, I remember lots of people. I remember, I don't remember the food as much, um, cause I was so little, but then, you know, fast forward a little older, my mom worked outside the home and unfortunately my dad got home before my mom did. So my mom came home and she's in a rush to get dinner on the table. I grew up thinking I hated steak because my poor mom, bless her soul, had always overcooked steak. And so I was an adult before I learned how amazing steak is because clearly if I don't like it, I'm probably not cooking it. And even if I did, I wouldn't know how, um, And then I was like, oh my goodness, this stuff is amazing. (laughs) So my poor mom always rushed to get dinner on the table, um, often overcooked foods. And, and when she had more time, you know, I, it wasn't really that. So holidays, I remember loving like Thanksgiving foods and we had our traditional stuffing and turkey and mashed potatoes and all that, you know, all the fixings that most of us have in North America or at least in the United States. Um, And at holidays, we always had turkey at Thanksgiving. We had ham at Christmas. And so then I was shocked as I got older to learn that people don't all do that. (laughs) You know, I'm like, what? You can have turkey at Christmas? What? Stuff like that, you know? Um, So I just grew up with, you know, food was more something you did. Our dinner table was kind of mm, like we could have discussions, but in that time, that era, it was more like what's said at the dinner table stays at the dinner table. We don't talk about our personal lives outside of our homes because back then, particularly, it was a lot of about keeping up appearances, you know, and food. I didn't. I don't know. I didn't really learn to cook until I like took home ec as an eighth grader. I remember wanting to learn how to make chocolate chip cookies because my brother made some pretty awesome chocolate chip cookies. And I remember asking him, can you show me how to make chocolate chip cookies? And he's like, figure it out. I did. <laughs> like, what? That's not helpful for someone with ADHD. But in those days, we didn't know I had that either. So whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, ha- I mean, like I have some very specific memories like English pea salad, disgusting canned peas with cheese and mayo and sweet pickles, I think. And 
oh, I just, I, <laughs> I'm like, I wish when I ate it, I'd thrown up. I wish I had done that because then we probably wouldn't have eaten it much more. And I think, I think all of us complained enough about it. And my mom was just like, okay, we're piecing out on that food. But, you know, so I have these weird memories around food, but there, none of them felt like I made life decisions on those memories, although I'm sure it affected my views. When I was in high school, I suddenly became very um, health conscious and not in a negative way. Like I never dealt with anorexia or bulimia or any of those things. I was kind of naive and I just was living life, but I became more health conscious. So I, I made choices that some of my friends, you know, they're all having candy and sodas and this and that. Now, granted, I came from kind of a lower middle class family, so we didn't have a lot of expendable income for things like that until I was much older. So, um, so yeah, I just started delving into food and, but more for my health reasons, not really because of outside reasons. And I can look at my poor mom and go, I understand, mom. I understand you were trying to get <laughs> dinner on the table and just trying to make something work. Did she rely on hand-me-down recipes or just opening up like whatever the magazine recipe of the week was and trying to create something from that? You know, I, I'm confident that she had some hand-me-down sort of things, but I also believe, and I'm, you know, I wish I'd thought to have this conversation with her before here, before now. And later today, when I talked to her, I am going to ask her these things <laughs> because, you know, there, she had a Betty Crocker cookbook and kicks herself to this day that she got rid of it at a garage sale because she got a new one thinking it was the same cookbook. Or maybe she threw it away. It was falling apart. And so she relied a lot on her Betty Crocker cookbook. And then when she got the new one and discovered it wasn't like the old one that she got rid of, she was so disappointed and had some favorite recipes today that she's missing because that cookbook's gone and she can't remember. And yeah, it's been revised know. or whatever edition mm -hmm. it's in now. And they probably like maybe healthified some things as well or yeah. changed the ingredients. You know, you reminded me as you were speaking of a couple of things, the social engagement factor of having sitting around with your cousins and mm. engaging in that with to the point where you don't even remember what you ate that it was so much more about just chit-chatting and catching up in family and then also the table you know in your more immediate family of sitting around the table so we had my brother myself my mom and my dad and it was very much you know when this time comes at the end of the evening this is when we all sit down we also had you know saturday and sunday breakfast and very time specific things we also had sort of routines that at the end of our dinners, we would also have a little special something, either a sweet tree, a baker, baked good that my mom would create or whatever fresh fruit was available. And that's something that to this day, I still do. Like as soon as I'm done with my savory meal, I need a little something, something. <laughs> so that's definitely something that's carried over. And then what you were saying too, about your mom kind of being the person in the kitchen more traditionally also at that time too, same thing with my mother. But I do remember her, again, with all due respect to our moms and their cooking yes. abilities, um, there were definitely things that I just didn't enjoy. And at the time I didn't recognize that maybe it was her approach or maybe it was also the fact that my father was not a huge fan of certain flavors and certain cooking yeah. methods. And so things felt a little bit bland or a little bit over cooked or well done. And now, right now as adults, we're a little bit more experimentative or a little bit more open to exploring different things. So share with us too, how this became 
more of a kind of trajectory when you started going to high school and developing that more health conscious approach how did that change your ability to feed yourself because were you cooking and shopping did you ask your family to you know get things at the grocery store for you were you in charge of making your own meals and bringing things to school because obviously high school settings are not always the most healthy things and healthy options there too so share with us a little bit about how you created that life for yourself and then as you became more independent into your adult stages as well yeah you know it's really fascinating with you posing that question is I don't I don't really have specific memories of influencing my mom's grocery shopping, but I'm pretty confident I did because I remember, (laughs) I remember one year for school, my school lunch, I literally ate a yogurt, string cheese and Triscuits every, I'm pretty sure it was every freaking day of that school year. And Uh, you know, whether that was, I thought at the time that was healthy or whether it was, I mean, it was Triscuits. I don't know that I would have chosen Triscuits if I didn't believe, you know, it was a whole grain thing that was healthy. Um, so clearly I must've had some influence because she was purchasing things that I chose to eat. Um, but you know, my mom was, uh, I'm sure it went both ways. I'm sure there was her influence as well. And like you, we had some family tradition, sitting down to the table for dinner was a family thing. We did that every night of the week. Uh, I think maybe Friday night was different if there was a school activity. Um, and I remember once you said that, I remember, oh yeah, Sunday mornings, my mom made breakfast for us Sunday mornings before going to church. So I can remember cream of wheat with raisins. And, you know, I just, so those little memories, you just kind of sparked by asking that question. Um, and of course, as a high schooler, you would expect me to more, be more autonomous about what I'm doing. But I also remember as a fourth grader, we lived across the street from my elementary school. And my mom made sure that I had permission to come home for lunch every day. So as a fourth grader, I came home, made my own lunch, and it was probably largely sandwiches or, you know, easy things that a kid would make. And then I'd go get myself back to school, hopefully on time. (laughs) Um, You know, so I was in charge of my own breakfast because my mom left early to go to work. My dad left early to go to work. I learned at a young age to, you know, make myself breakfast and lunch. But I remember when my mom was home, we did have the family. Everybody sits down here and we eat together. Yeah. Um, And even eating was at the table. So even when I came home for lunch and made my meal, my lunch and me came to the table and I ate there. It wasn't going to my room or any of those things that our society seems to do a lot of today. Right. In front of the television, in front of the computer. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for family community around the table. Um, which seems to be a lost art in many families. Um, but yeah, we learn a lot from our families and our eating. And like you, I love the whole, and after I'm done with my savory part, I've got to have that thing because this is what my body learned was what we do. And to unlearn any of that, if we wanted to, takes takes effort, yeah. you know? I wanted to ask you too, I know, and I've shared this before in some of the previous episodes, my father was kind of strict with going out to eat. Why eat outside when we can make it here? And especially since we were Italian, it was ridiculous for pizza and pasta as an outside activity. So if we did go anywhere, it would be maybe to a seafood restaurant, but really that was probably it. We didn't really explore a lot of other cultures. Did you have any availability of 
going out and venturing out and trying things like Thai food or Mexican food, whether it was part of your family as a younger person or once you got to be more independent? Well, it was more as I got older, which I think was largely tied to income. I think my parents, when I was younger, had less um, expendable income to spend on things. I can remember the very first time we had Burger King, <laughs> you know, when Whoppers seemed ginormous and and my dad had had one with a friend or something. And he came home like, oh, my goodness, you wouldn't believe this. And so the entire family you know, had Burger King, but I'm pretty sure I was already in high school. So any of that extra go outside to eat thing happened when I was in high school or older, maybe I came home from college. Um, even as an adult coming back to town, then the family might go out to Chinese food. And we live in an area that has a, a huge Hispanic community because it's agricultural. So, you know, Mexican food is everywhere here, but I don't remember having that as a kid. So probably for money saving reasons, we ate in home all the time until I was older, which probably is because now we had a little more, more money to maybe have in a treat by going out. And so I want to jump ahead now to where this all brought you to who you are today. A lot of people in the health and wellness space and in the coaching, right, service providing, we either bring with us our own experiences and want to help other people like us, or we've maybe just gotten curious or interested in that particular field or profession or popu patient population, client population. So how did you go into what you're doing now? Or was it a direct connection or did you stop along the way and do other things before you landed to where you are now? Yeah, it was not a direct line. <laughs> so um, what was interesting while I was health aware in high school and then going into college, like I was a person that was not on a college team, but I was going to the weight room and lifting weights. I think I started that in high school, like high school gym class um, because because of the classes I had, I had a lot of AP class, advanced placement classes. And because of that, I, my schedule didn't leave me open to having PE when my normal group, you know, senior, junior, whatever year I was at the time had. And so I got to have different opportunities. So I got to take a weight lifting class instead of being in like sophomore PE or something like that. But then as I became older as an adult, um, you know, I remember my mom, her family has genetics that lean towards heart disease very young. And so, you know, her dad had his first heart attack very young. Her mom had a heart attack very young. And so my mom ended up having open heart surgery at 50. And that was after it took her 10 years of symptoms to finally get somebody to pay attention to her. So as an adult now, I'm starting to raise my family. And and then my birth father um, got leukemia and died at 53. So as an adult raising my family, I had this thought, why am I waiting to have some health emergency to pay attention? And so I started putting myself on a more regular exercise routine. Um, I had little kids, so I started with jump roping. Okay, that is not a beginner sport, people. Let me just tell you. <laughs> I like how to start with five minutes at a time. I'm like <gasps> heavy breathing. Anyway, um, you know, start with walking maybe. But <laughs> so I just started um, being more active. I've always been active. I love being active. It helps my brain. Um, I started 
really researching, somehow I came across raw foodism and I became a raw foodist for a time and practiced, you know, I was only eating raw fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. I still had young kids. I still had a husband. So and my husband supported me, but he didn't want to be a raw foodist. So, you know, breakfast and lunch were typically raw food and then dinner. I had raw food, but my family had, you know, their side of whatever their um, meat is and whatever their carbohydrates, whatever. And there was a lot of good in that. And also I learned that doesn't, that wasn't the best for my body. So I had a growing time where I had to pay attention to my body and what's happening and how do I feel? And now what do I want to do with that information? So there was not a direct line. And then when I became a life coach, let me just <laughs> be honest. I got certified as life coach. And I remember telling myself, there's two things I am not going to do. I am not going to do anything to do with ADD, ADHD, and I'm not going to do anything with health, which ironically are the two things I have the most information on and the most experience. And so it took me some time to come full circle back <laughs> and go, you know, I have knowledge that could be helpful. Perhaps I want to go there. I often tend to, and I think some of this has come up in other interviews as well. I often tell people, you know, pay attention to certain signs around you when people go to you for resources or for guidance, when people tell you you're good at something, these are things that you might really want to look into, even if you're kind of fighting against it, or you never thought that might be the direction you want to take, pay attention to some of the signs around you. So Tia, can we define for our listeners for a moment here, because we're going to talk about brain and cognitive abilities, and also the definition or what has been known as now the spectrum of neurodivergence, you know, you mentioned ADD, ADHD. Can you share with us, since that is your specialty, what that is, what that means? And then we'll go into also about how potentially managing just life in general, working with businesses, and also making sure that we're paying attention to our mental and physical health with these kind of neuro neurodivergent conditions or diagnoses, however you might want to define it. Sure. You know, um, I mentioned before that when I was a kid, uh, my family didn't know what ADHD was. And it's really funny. I bounce back and forth between ADD and ADHD. And that's because, you know, the official diagnosis is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It used to be there was an ADD and there was an ADHD. Um, and now they've put it all under ADHD, but you can have ADHD inattentive. So maybe not necessarily appearing to be hyperactive or you can have very much the hyperactivity. And then there's the combo deal. I began following years ago, Dr. Daniel Amen, who is, um, you know, he was ahead of his time in his field, did the spec scanning for brains. I've gone to his clinic and done the scans for my brain. I'm not affiliated with him in any way, but I love that man. <laughs> He doesn't know how much he is one of my best friends. <laughs> and one of these days, I hope to tell him. And so for me, I have the inattentiveness, you know, but as a child, I was just the daydreamer. And I, my, I would hyper-focus. Many people have hyper-focus. So it's not that we don't, it's not that we have an attention deficit. It's that we have a difficulty regulating our attention. So we can be the same person who is constantly distracted and we can be the same person who gets 
really involved in something that is highly keeping our interest and we don't want to stop and God help the person who interrupts us, you know, and this is just, it's a brain thing. So years ago, I remember raising kids and my oldest definitely had ADHD and probably autism, but I did, I wasn't well-versed in autism. And so I didn't understand or see the signs, but I can remember in certain social circles, people saying, your child is acting this way. It's a parenting issue. You're not disciplining them well enough. And that was such a travesty for the children and for the parents, you know? So, um, lack of attention, hyperactivity, struggling to, um, focus, struggling to complete, to start and or complete tasks. It's, you know, their prefrontal cortex, it does not work efficiently, effectively. As a matter of fact, the more we put pressure on ourselves, the more that prefrontal cortex kind of shuts down, right? Your neural uh, neurotransmitters, they don't fire right, blah, 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 which is why many of us, at least at some point in our life, if not currently, um, self-medicate with caffeine, you know, there was the talk about why would you ever give a stimulant to a hyperactive child? That's so crazy. Well, I'll tell you why it's because it stimulates that part of the brain to function normally, <laughs> but there was just so much misinformation and so much shame around the topic. There are people today who still don't think ADHD is actually a real thing. And it's both frustrating. And so I want to educate them and I want to strangle them all at the same time. Um, but I realize you don't know what you don't know until you have the information and you have to be willing to be open to learning the information and to maybe thinking, could there, could there be something different to what I thought this was? I too had some issues when I was a child, I've come to learn what those issues are. So in 1998, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was medicated. I had been on and off medicine, but I also have been in and out of therapy, which I think is huge because mm -hmm. I don't love doing one without the other. And I've also been able to take some strategies and tools with me to recognize when I am feeling a little bit one or the other extreme and reach out for support and help. Um, I wanted to also address too, you know, when we work with people who have a particular condition like this, especially for the younger children or people who might be less able to function in their diagnosis, where you're also now dealing with the parent or the caregiver. And just like you said, so I'm a child of the 60s and the 70s. My parents were very unaware and maybe not really great at reaching out to find out what they could do to help their child. So I just recently shared this with somebody. I had what I think is Tourette's at the time, right? So I had some tics and noticeable things that I was doing and I was told, knock it off. Off. your people are looking at you. And right. so never was I sent to anybody and my inattentiveness or your, you know, as you mentioned, kind of your, it, my inability to regulate my attention, I would be yelled at. You always start and never finish something. We, we can't rely on you. And I was like, yo, I'm eight or 11 or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I didn't know that I should be speaking up. And so this also I'm hard pressed to believe that there is a human being that I've ever come across that doesn't have some kind of situation that's similar. Like who are the true neurotypicals in this country? Like I'd like to meet them. And if so, 
really are you or do you just not believe or not necessarily recognizing or, or are you open, masking yeah masking exactly mm -hmm. so i love talking and breaking the stigma of mental health issues. And I think this is also something, as I mentioned to you earlier, that a lot of the listeners who I know are my students or people in the health and wellness space, understanding not just for your own sense of, you know, maybe you might want to disclose some things. I mean, you might want to be careful with that stuff, but also if you are the one who's trying to help and support people with certain conditions, that it can be quite challenging, right? We want to help mm -hmm. people get better or be able to manage and support whatever they're doing in their lives, but it, it might not be that easy or might have to be dealing with a, a variety of different personalities, both the person who is dealing with that particular situation, that condition, and then, as I said before, the parent or the care provider who might have a whole different agenda of what they do and do not want to bring into that. So share with us what maybe like a current week in the life of you is. How are you dealing and managing and working with your clients? Do you have a variety or a range of ages that you work with or different kinds of populations? And also, as we, as I said before, if I'm using the proper terminology of the functioning too, are there people who are more higher or lower functioning where you can step in and guide it? Or do you try to, you know, maybe pre-assess or pre-screen people you're working with? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have work, like I, my background is I became a homeschool mommy <laughs> and I also uh, was vice president on a local organization. I also ran a, a co-op. I, I have dealt with all ages and my very first client as a life coach actually was a teenager. Uh, um, I think she was 12 when we started and I had not yet niched down to ADHD. At that time, I was just doing general life coaching. Um, and I loved working with her. Working with students are different in that, first of all, sometimes it takes a little longer to gain and build their trust so that they feel able and open to have some discussions with you that they're challenged with. So many of us growing up, you know, when you're a child, well, first of all, your brain has to develop to a certain space where you can understand more of the world around you, right? And so, and in the meantime, you're already learning things about when you're allowed to speak up, when you're not allowed to speak up, your self-esteem or lack thereof, you know, those things are already being put in place by the time you're a young teen. So I love, I love working with kids, um, students. Lately, I have been working with more adults. I love working with adults. The problem is I just love people. <laughs> I'm like, if I can help you, I'm going to, <laughs> you know, if I can guide you to learn how to love yourself, love your unique brain and create a life that you desire to have a life that you love. I'm going to, I'm going to help you and guide you in that. So I, I haven't like put age limits on. Um, I just want to be available to those who need me. And, and right now, lately it's been more adults. One thing I learned, and I really only learned it in the last few years, I I've been divorced, um, only since 2019. So I got divorced right just prior to a pandemic. And at the same time was going through menopause. There was a lot of life changes. And so life got a little crazy for me there. And I really was struggling with my mental health. Um, so I had to learn some things about myself and put 
some boundaries into place for myself. And I was never boundaries really weren't something I was good at. <laughs> so big learning curve. Current week looks like my mornings. I protect them with a pretty fiercely. I, I no longer accept doctor's appointments, dentist appointments, any appointments, anything before 11 o'clock. I will not go out into the world unless it's something I just highly, highly desire. Like you could probably talk me into meeting you uh, in Packwood at 6 a.m. to go hiking up Mount Rainier. But other than something that is a high desire, I am not going anywhere. I wake up. I immediately do a meditation. I get up and I have my coffee. I've recently learned that I have Hashimoto's. So I try to eat breakfast within that first hour. So often with my coffee, not every day today, I didn't. Um, and then I sit down and I have time for me. I, I have like a brief, um, I have a five-year journal that I, one of my children gave me and my children, are all adult children, by the way, but <laughs> Gave me as a present. And so I do that very quickly. So my children will have this five-year snapshot. It's just a question each day. And it's the same question every day of the year. So that's pretty fascinating. I do that. And then I sit down and I journal. Sometimes my journaling is really personal stuff, like what someone would designate as a diary. Sometimes it's where I end up getting brainstorms and I write content for my clients. And so it, it's a little of both. Um, but that is a very, typically a very protected time for me because I'm not, I'm not, I've never been like a morning person per se. Although I recently was in Mexico and the birds had me and the sunshine had me up at 5 a.m. every day. And let me tell you, if I moved to Mexico, I could become a morning person. I'm pretty confident. But <laughs> anyway, so I protect my morning. I think people, my experience with people I've spoken to who have ADD, ADHD, they have often been shamed for struggling to be up and productive in the morning. And for most of us, we were night owls. Um, interestingly, as I've gone through menopause, I'm becoming more of a morning person, but not by choice. It's just simply my hormones won't let me sleep. So there's some of that comes into play. So in seasons of life, your personal schedule may change, but pay attention and give yourself permission to follow the schedule that fits your life. Maybe you would do better working a night shift than an early morning shift. And if that's the case, that's okay. We need those people too. So, you know, that's what my week starts that way. Then I coach and I, I have boundaries. I only coach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday right now. There's so many holidays on Mondays and then Fridays, I always kind of want to start the weekend early. So right now that's what I've chosen to do. When I move into say right now, I'm doing just one-on-one. -on -one. If I move into group coaching, you know, maybe I'll open up sometime on Friday, probably never Monday because so many holidays, um, little things like that are the things to pay attention to what serves you, your brain, your body, why fight against what your brain and body are telling you? Now, for some people, whatever career they chose, perhaps they have to, you know, if if you chose to go into education, then yeah, you're kind of stuck with getting up early and doing that unless you're picking an alt education model or, you know, outside of our standard public school system. But notice, pay attention you might find yourself that this isn't serving you and it's okay to change careers if you need to. I don't care what your age is. I became a life coach in my fifties. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, pay attention to those things. And personally, I also work on one of the challenges I had as someone who has an ADHD brain is that giving myself permission to do things that I want to do because I grew up learning that my my self-worth was tied to my productivity. So it was really hard to give myself permission to have downtime. And so I learned actually as a life coach, I learned schedule your downtime first. So I'm now getting back into art that I left way back in the college years. Um, I'm now looking at things that I enjoyed living my life from a place of what brings my soul pleasure, what, what lights my soul on fire. And I have not arrived. I don't think anybody ever arrives. It's a journey, but I am better serving myself by noticing what seems to be best for my brain, my body, my joy, my happiness. We only get one life. So spending it worrying, shame, blame, and judging yourself, right? that's not good. That's yeah. not good. I'm keeping my eye on the time here, but as I mentioned to you and as my listeners know, I'm scribbling fervently on my notepad here. So I have a thousand questions. Some of the things I'll hone in on really have to do with that ability to be self-aware while still dealing with an ADHD brain. So mm -hmm. there is a luxury sometimes or a privilege with being able to recognize boundaries, but it's very important. It's part of your self-care treatment plan, I would say, to be just like you mentioned, right? Park that time in there. Give yourself the downtime, understand when you might have low energy or high energy days, take advantage of some things and allow that extra care that you need because it's so important. Otherwise you won't be able to be the productive, ambitious person. You end up wiping yourself out or burning yourself out. And so do you mind sharing with us a few, maybe steps or tips just to kind of recognize Obviously, what works for you might not work for everybody, but I think you really pointed out a couple of takeaways things. How does one set boundaries with themselves or boundaries with other people? Is there a strategy or something to be mindful about in doing that? The self-awareness, the routines. Um, I mean, I think you shared a lot just now, but is there anything that might be a little bit more generally applicable if somebody's kind of stuck in that way? Or fear fear comes up a lot in our conversations on this podcast too. If they're afraid of moving in that direction, what will people think of me? I feel my self-worth is tied in. I can't say no. What might be the way to kind of break through that? Wow, there's a lot to all of that. Um, I took notes so I wouldn't have to ask you, what were you asking me again? <laughs> So boundaries, I think the most important thing to know about boundaries are boundaries are not put in place to punish anyone. Boundaries are there to protect. And if you, if you have someone in your life that is overstepping boundaries that you want to have in place and you're struggling to hold to them you might need to step away from that relationship. Um, the other thing about boundaries is if you're going to set a boundary, there needs to be a clear line and there needs to be a clear consequence and you need to follow through on the consequence. I think as I was better learning about boundaries, uh, it, it was hard. And, and if you, you know, if you are an adult, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. You're not going to get it right the first time, right? So give yourself permission to have compassion for the fact that 
I set this boundary, they crossed it, I did not hold the line, I did not follow through on the consequence. Take it as a learning lesson, take it as okay, what can I learn from this? What can I do different? Um, and just have compassion for yourself, you have you have to, it's a learning process to learn how to do that. And it's challenging. As far as self awareness, um, that is something you develop. I think we had it as children. And I think our self-awareness and intuition is taught out of us. So it is, I, I say I'm in this season that I call the great unlearning. I am now unlearning stories I learned as a child that my brain thought were truths that now I can see they no longer serve me. They're not actual truths for me. So my self-awareness, I think, has grown by leaps and bounds within the last couple of years. And part of that is because I've taken an active practice to do it. I took up meditation, which you'll hear a lot of people with ADHD going, I can't meditate. I can't sit still. And I challenge you <laughs> because neuroscience has shown us we can train our brain. And while it might be true that you can't sit still for 15 minutes and not hold any thoughts, okay, can anyone? I mean, come on. Let's be real. Start with a minute. And if you notice thoughts, it's okay. Notice them, let them pass. Um, I personally started doing meditation with, you know, no sounds, whatever. I might've noticed with the birds I'm hearing, whatever. But I, I learned I do like guided meditations. I mean, there's so many ways to meditate, explore, find what works for you. Um, and your self-awareness will grow. And meditation helps with self, emotional self-regulation. So there's that. Fear. Oh, that's that thing we all deal with. Yes. You're always going to have fear. If you're a human, you're going to experience fear. It's what it is. You can't get around it. It's a fact. So instead, once again, what can I learn from this? Maybe ask yourself, why am I afraid? Write it down. Look at it. Is this a thought or is this a fact? Is this something that can be proven in a court of law? Oh, no, it's not. Oh, look, that's really just a thought. Will people judge you? Yes, someone will always judge you. And this is something we have to unlearn. You you will be judged and you your journey is to learn how to not focus on the potential judgment. And if you think about it, most of the time people are worried about themselves and they're worried about who's judging them. They're not actually judging you as much as you think they are. And let them judge. That is that is their mind, their thought. We have no control over it. And it's not even our job. So your job is to be aware of your thoughts, your mind, your body. Take responsibility for that and allow yourself permission to be on this journey we call life and learning as you go. You will not be perfect. No one on the planet is. So allow yourself to be imperfect and allow yourself to learn from your experiences. Yeah, you have really validated quite a lot of things in my own mind, but also a lot of things that have come up in previous episodes and conversations as well. The innate, innate ability, right? We've talked about that in the food relationships because I also teach life cycle nutrition and we understand that babies can regulate their caloric intake. It's only when they start having that ex those external factors of you're eating too much, you're not eating enough, you're getting too big, you're getting too skinny, that the outside world starts affecting them. And then 
flash forward 47 years later, and they've had a horrible relationship with food, horrible mm -hmm. relationship with their body. And this is all because of the things that they might have heard, you know, from ages three to nine or something like that. And yes. so, you know, the things that you were talking about and what we shared with each other prior to recording this also of just being compassionate with yourself and patient with yourself. I do believe it's, it's a challenge to do that in this particular maybe day and age where people want immediate gratification or they get very oh, yeah. restless and they're expecting, you know, quick turnarounds on things or not maybe, I don't want to say willing or maybe able to put in the time to slow the heck down and allow themselves to, because you can't unlearn 47 years of right? potential damage and trauma in a matter of three months, right? This could be- yep another 47 years of undoing, but taking that day by day. And I also love what you said too, of allowing yourself to just be mindful, whether it's through guided meditation or going out in nature and just having that quiet moment of just being in a place that's larger than yourself yes. really helps with perspective. So I really appreciate all of that. I feel like you've empowered and advocated for quite a lot with hopefully anybody out there that this might be resonating with to give them the ability to get over that fear, get over that need to, you know, please other people or whatever might be holding them back and really keeping them stuck in that, in that moment in time. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share my heart. Absolutely. I want to venture a little further first, before I go into my final couple of questions, where do you see yourself and your role in the future? Or do you plan ahead in that sense? Cause you had the five-year journal. Do you see yourself five to 10 years from now doing something on a grander scale or fine tuning some things? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, so I, I see myself, I've always had the heart to help people, so I see myself continuing to grow my, my life coaching practice and probably eventually moving to include some um, group coaching because I really want to be accessible to people of all um, financial demographics because I myself needed help when I didn't have a lot of money to get help. So, you know, there's, there's ways to help those people too. And at the same time, be able to feed myself and put a roof over my head. So I think that will be um, in my future. I also think writing a book is in my future. I actually have about three books in my head already that I haven't bothered to work on yet. But, you know, well, I can't say that. I have I have written down some notes and um, what I call nuts and bolts for that. So that's in the future. I see myself making sure that I, I grow my art practice. And that might never be for anybody but me. And I'm okay with that. Um, so... I don't often look way into the future, but I do take moments of being future-minded. Sometimes I ask my future self, what should I do here? <laughs> you know, when I'm feeling stuck or whatever, um, because I think there's some wisdom in that. I, yeah, I think those are probably the top things, the key things. And at the same time, you know, loving on my family, I have four children who are all adults and um, one's married, one's um, they're not officially engaged yet, but that's coming very soon. I mean, they picked a ring out. <laughs> so, you know, being the person who gets to love on my family, spend time with my family, being the person who is constantly learning more about myself and my world and the people who come in my social influence and, um, being able to continue to be the person that helps others. Yeah. That is so sweet and so special. Relationships are very important to me too. I will say I recognize a little bit 
when I'm a little bit too stimulated or if I have too much on my plate and I tend to try to do as much as I can within a certain amount of time. So if I have a lot of friends reaching out, let's get together. I'm like, can we just all go to brunch? <laughs> like just pick one right. day. Let's just all go to brunch together. Or if I have more than one thing on an, you know, an evening of a week, unfortunately I'll say, um, we'll, we'll have to wait until maybe three weeks from now before I can fit that in. But in the meantime, let's text and keep up and, you know, keep right. each other in, in touch with each other that way. That's, That's really that self-awareness. That's a self-awareness and, and holding boundaries to help your own mental well-being. Absolutely. As in, as extroverted, I think as people see me and that I think of myself as I also am introverted, like, you know, I love people, but not crowds. And I, like one-on-one -on -one time, but I also could be the center of attention sometimes if I want. Mm -hmm. So that's, again, coming with trial and error, <laughs> putting yourself yes. in those uncomfortable situations and going, nope, that's not for me. That comes off the list. So Tia, is there anything that we haven't covered or something that you might want to share before we start wrapping up officially with our conversation? I think something that um, I was reminded of when I was reading um, the book, The Four Agreements is to do your best every day, but also to realize your best will look different on different days. That's like why you were, what you're talking about. Some days I realize there's too much on the schedule and I just can't do it all. You're doing the best you can. And you also want to protect yourself, your, your well-being so that you can continue to be the best that you can be for yourself for your loved ones, for your friends. And there's nothing wrong with that. I had one more question just related to food with people who are dealing with ADHD. This comes up a lot in the younger population of, you know, maybe picky eaters or children who might have food jags or even as they grow older, if they're kind of set in their ways of, I don't like, or do like certain things, if they have aversions to things, can you speak a little bit about that too? Kind of like what approaches might be easiest to take? Sometimes we have to just resolve to pick our battles if that is the case. And have you had any experiences with that in your, what you're doing? There's a difference between whether it's a picky eater, like children will all be picky at some point because they are learning their taste. They're learning to have, you know, self-command. So they want to assert themselves at times. So there's a very big difference between say a picky eater and someone who might have an actual physical issue with texture or, you know, I, the term just left my brain, but you know, when they have an actual problem with their gag reflex. So as a parent to be aware that, um, look at all possibilities. Don't just make an assumption. Now, parents also usually have pretty good intuition. So they might realize this kid just wants macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets because, hey, those taste good when you're a kid and they're easy to eat. But as a parent who's raised four kids, um, I would say be mindful of choosing short-term ease at the expense of long-term um, ease. Because yes, when you're tired, especially if you work outside the home, as both parents often do this day and age, you're coming home, you're tired, you just want to feed the kid and be able to relax because you had a rough day at work. I get it. But now you're training your child that they can have the same thing every day or they can have those low quality foods when the fact is we want to nourish our children. We want their bodies to get fueled and grow because that affects their brain. 
So jumping ahead a little bit for people who are ADHD or actually anyone who has um, neuroscience is teaching us if you have uh, mental health issues, if you have ADHD, you know, bipolar, a lot of these diagnoses that many of us have, your food and the quality of your food affects your brain, affects your body. So for us, it's good to be mindful of avoiding sugar and refined foods and artificial sweeteners and flavorings and colors. It seems so innocent because it's all around us, but those things affect your actual brain and the development of your brain. And even as an adult, if you notice, take note of when you decided to binge on whatever your favorite sugary item is, notice how you feel the next day, the next morning, waking up. It all affects your body. So at the best, do what you can to fuel your body for the long-term benefit versus eating something for the momentary pleasure. And not that we can't sometimes have momentary pleasures, but in the big picture, in the long-term, work towards fueling your brain so that you can be the best you possibly can be. I really appreciate that. There's that dosage and toxicity discussion, right? How much is too much of anything? allowing yourself the freedom to indulge in treats, but the pattern over it all, like how often is this becoming the rule instead of the exception? And yeah. just like you said, documenting or being mindful of the symptoms and recognizing when this happens, I start feeling sluggish, less focused, what more irritable, whatever those things are. And again, that comes with the mindfulness and the self-awareness too, of recognizing, oh, that's directly related to something that I might have played a role in and not having right. control over things like that. So my last two questions that I ask all of my guests are somewhat related, somewhat food pun intended, which is what is on your plate today? So it is currently a Friday afternoon on my end, a Friday earlier afternoon on your end. What is the thing that you might be doing next as soon as we end our conversation? And then what is the next meal that you will be having? Well, I'll tell you, because I have yet to have lunch. <laughs> And I've been in town now for 48 hours and I have yet to go to the grocery store. So smack. So my next meal likely will be coleslaw because my boyfriend had made this big thing of coleslaw and sent a lot home with me. So it's readily available. Coleslaw and also came home with some ham. So that's probably what it's going to be. And yeah. And then after I'm Fed, I will go to the grocery store often what's on my plate at lunch because I like ease and simplicity is I'll often like make up a salad with maybe romaine depends on what I have on hand I might throw an English cucumber and some tomatoes on it and then I usually make like you know like people make tuna salad I don't know why I have an aversion to tuna right now but I do so I don't make that but I'll use canned salmon and do the same thing with Sometimes I use avocado in place of mayo. Sometimes it's mayo and some pickles and onions and I'll put spike seasoning on it. And then I put that on top of my lettuce and it's high protein, but also my carbs are all my veggies, which I love and just make me feel so good when I eat that way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my immediate. <laughs> do you have any downtime Friday evening things that you do? Do you kind of like wind down or do administrative things or just kind of chill and, you know, review your week in that sense? You know, okay. Let's first of all, go back to the fact that I am ADD. <laughs> I have really good intentions in my ideal world on the weekend. I would prep 
probably many, many meals for the week. So it wasn't a last minute, try to put something together because I have this old story that food is hard. And as long as I hold that story, I know food will be hard. So I'm unlearning that story and learning now to go back to what fuels me, what makes my body feel good. And in the ideal world, I do a lot of prepping ahead of time. Some weeks I do that, but not very many. <laughs> so that's what I'm working towards for myself. That's why I often will keep just random veggies in the fridge because I can always pull that out, whether it's, you know, having to cook some broccoli before having it with a side of chicken, whatever. Um, so a lot of times I will eat simply just because I'm one of those people who doesn't want to be really complicated. And then you'll find days, okay, maybe my kids are coming over. Now I got a reason to cook. It's not just me. Let's break out all the cool recipes and the gadgets and fix something really cool that's going to create a huge mess in the kitchen. And it'll be great. But I don't seem to do that for myself so much. It's pretty simple for myself. <laughs> I'm I'm the same way. As much as I love the culinary world and I've done things as a personal chef and a caterer back in the day, you will find the same staple foods in my fridge and my pantry. And I eat the same basic things over and over again, which yeah. cracks me up because I'm always taking like, you know, Instagram photos. I'm like, Oh, look, it's the same stuff I ate in there. <laughs> I just put the avocado here instead of that side. So like, right. do? but this also speaks to you again, recognizing our needs and also recognizing yes. just the need to nourish ourselves. It doesn't have to be fancy. You can take away that challenge of how extravagant I need to be, you know, creating meals for myself or just popping open canned tuna, canned salmon and throwing it into a bowl and calling it a day. Food is food. It doesn't have to be high. I have to say, though, I once was in an online group and I would post and to me, they were kind of the same things, you know, but I put a hemp seed on it this time. So it looks pretty. And I had a I had a gal kind of call me out. She goes, I feel like you. Oh, how did she word it? She's like, I feel like you make your salad on per, like place things on your salad on purpose. And I was like, why? I do because I like eating pretty food. I, <laughs> do what works for you. <laughs> exactly. Right. We have the visual, the olfactory, like we eat yes. with other senses, not just our stomachs. Very true. Tia, it has been a true pleasure getting to know you, learn a little bit more about you, have you share your insight with our listeners. I'm so grateful to be able to have met you in that internet, social media, yes. you know, world that that tech world that we live in. Thank you so much for spending time with me. And, and I really appreciate this. And I look forward to, you know, future collaborations or discussions. Yes. Thank you so much for allowing me to come on and share what I do in my heart. And I just love the conversation with you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.